What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This season, the Thursday Club on Fulhamish is sponsored by Green King Sport, where football is more than a game. Green King Sport venues are showing every televised Fulham fixture over the course of the 23-24 season. And with our upcoming game against Wolves at the Cottage live on Sky Sports, if you can't get to SW6 on the Monday night, head to your local Green King Sport pub instead, and they will be showing the match. Also this season, Green King have launched the Green King Sport Instagram page, which is home to fan content, deals, and competitions throughout the season. They've already given away Champions League final tickets and signed shirts as well. So follow them at Green King Sport for your chance to win those great prizes and find out all about their special upcoming deals. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. Fulhamish podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. Welcome to the show. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be hosting the Thursday Club today. And I'm delighted to say that moving away from the analyst chair and into the host chair means that I've got a special pick of guests. So I'd like to welcome to the Thursday Club, Mr. Drew Heatley. How you doing, mate? Hello, Jack. When daddy's away, the boys come out to play. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sammy goes away for one week. I'm like, oh, let's get friends and fun on the Thursday club. Let's go. Uh, and Peter's away, so we can't, can't use him either. So uh, joining us today is a good friend of mine, Mr. Dean Jones. How you doing, mate? Hello, mate. Yeah, another sub appearance from me. But I'm happy. I'm happy to be a sub on here. It's a, it's, it's a strong team. It's a strong lineup to break into. So, yeah, happy to be here, lads. Good. It's good. I've got, I've got lots to talk about today. We're in going into the last game of this period of the season before the international break, which is against Aston Villa at Villa Park. We'll address that in part two. We've got loads of your questions and some transfer stuff to get through in part three as well. But before we do any of that, I think it's probably just a moment to reflect a couple of days later on what happened (laughs) at Craven Cottage at the weekend. It was a strange game in many ways. There were lots of things going on off the pitch. There was obviously the protest. Um, and then it ended in perhaps the most Fulhamish manner that you could possibly ask for. We're Fulham mixing ourselves up in our own box and conceding very, very late to Bruno Fernandes. Drew, we've had a couple of days to look back at it now. Can we pick out some positives in this performance? Because I think at the time it just felt like pure frustration. Yeah, it just it overall was just a hugely sort of grim uh afternoon really and nobody I mean, who really likes a, a lunchtime kickoff certainly not me um i uh i actually wasn't even at the game because topically me and my dad and my brother have two season tickets between the three of us by the time uh the tickets came on sale to season ticket holders about 320 quid so i sat that one out uh, graciously <laughs> i thought i do you know what i've got no interest in another late late uh loss to united especially at a lunchtime kickoff so i i sat out but yeah i mean what Positives, Iwobi maybe uh, continues to impress wherever he's put, um, which is uh, which is which is good to see. But obviously, I think a lot of us would rather him be a bit more, a bit further up on the pitch. But he still did well on the weekend. Um, but other than that, I mean, yeah, it's uh, water is wet, Fulham lose late to United at home or, or away, indeed. So yeah, a bit of a bit of a grim one, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think in many ways we've seen this script before, but. 
There is a point there, Dean, that look, United felt a little bit there for the taking this weekend. And I think that maybe that's the the thing that hangs over everything and that they have been in, in poor form. We kind of let them get a foothold in the game, which wasn't ideal. But there were long periods of this, I thought, where Fulham were in relative control, created some good chances. And I think after the first initial scare of the VAR decision that was ruled out, Fulham sort of grabbed control of the middle of the game. And it was only towards the end of it that that started to wane again. Yeah, I remember in particular, we had like a a 10 minute spell where it looked like we might get something um, in the second half. I was like, feels like a goal's coming here but where is it like where is this goal and I was frustrated I mean Harry Wilson is starting to drive me a little mad I've got to say like I want I love the guy like I'm just running out of patience a bit because it always feels like he's looking for the perfect goal he's cutting in cutting in he's cutting in he's waiting he's waiting and that perfect angle for him just not opening up. And I've just felt there were so many opportunities for Wilson to actually just hit it a little bit earlier and at least just just test Onana. Like we know, okay, he might be in good form at the moment, but we've seen Onana over the course of this season. Just test him. Like just give him something to do. And it just didn't feel like we did that enough. Once Willian went off, obviously I was, that's always going to be a goal threat too. And Willian always looked like he to me, looked like the most likely person to score for us. So that was always a concern. And I've got to say, in terms of another concern, Anthony Robinson, consistently inconsistent in my eyes. And just like, I, I just like, it's, it's baffling to me how this guy can be so good, yet so many times in a game do things that just blow my mind in terms of why have you done that? Or how have you ended up in that scenario? So that's, that's frustrating, but it will be definitely a positive. Like so far, one of my favourite players of the season. Um, Got to find a role for him that's regular in this setup. Um, I didn't even mind when when uh, he moved out to the left in the, in the second half. I, I didn't even mind that to be honest, because he he's got something about him, hasn't he? He's got he's just got that elitism. I think that we're sometimes lacking at the moment. Um, so I, I enjoyed that. But where are the goals coming from, lads? Like we. You know, I've got I've taken a five year old boy to football these days and he started going at the back end of the championship. He's been through last season. He thinks that's the norm. Unfortunately, he's now seeing the real Fulham and he's very confused as to why we're no longer scoring goals. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go back into the striker debate because I think at this point it feels like much of a muchness, Drew. You know, it's, it's three players who all have slightly differing strengths but all have incredibly glaring weaknesses as well. And it doesn't seem like any of them are the answer. There was a lot of calls that after the performance against Ipswich, Muniz should start. He got that start. He did okay. He he worked hard. He won some big aerial battles. But there just isn't any sort of cutting edge that I can see in any of our three strikers. Look, there's link-up play advantages to all three of them. There are aerial advantages to, to Carlos Vinicius and, and Rodrigo Muniz. There's a, a link-up play advantage for, for Raul when the ball's on the floor and actually bringing players into play. But there is no advantages when it comes to sticking the ball in the back of the net, it seems. No, I think, um, I think at least until January, it looks like we're going to be looking to, madly, the man up top to be bringing others into play. I think that's going to be the secret. Um, and 
we got Munez against United, which I think was a tough a tough start for him, really, because, you know, for what they lack in technical ability, Maguire and Evans are big lads. And it was, you know, he did all right, but it's tough. It's a tough start. And he came off and it was a shame. So I'd like to see him again. Um, we had a really good piece on the website not long ago about how to get the best out of Harry Wilson. And uh, one of those is... Uh, having uh, one of those men up top who can bring bring him into play a bit more, hold the ball up. And I think Muniz is probably going to be that guy. And, it, and and that's where I think we're going to get the most joy at the moment coming up to January until we figure that out is to how to bring our, our wingers in more, uh, I think, because uh, they're the ones who really know how to, uh, it seemed, well, they did um, know how to put the ball in there. I think that's the way we're going to have to do it. So, I'd like to see Muniz again, but again, we don't know until Marco's presser whether he's going to be fit for Villa or not. But um, it's like you say, you know, lots of lots of weaknesses in all three, and I think we're all just getting a bit fed up. Um, it's just trying to find out, you know, who's the best of a bad bunch at the moment, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, we'll come on to, we've got some questions about who comes in in January, etc. So we'll, we'll address those in part three, but it feels time to, to actually get onto the goal. And in so many ways, you know, Polina had another masterclass in the middle and another brilliant performance that we've just come to expect week in, week out from him. He gives the ball away for the goal and you almost don't blame him for it because at that point, it felt like he'd covered so much ground team. That, he earned his bread, hadn't he, that day? Well, it was more than that. It was just like, I, I'm surprised he's still standing up, never mind yeah. able to play a pass out. But it is frustrating in some ways. And, and look, I'm a huge proponent of the fact that we shouldn't just lump the ball away because it keeps coming back at us and that is not how you deal with pressure. But there are moments where you go, okay, if you're going to play the ball out, then at least use the, the the channels that probably offer the least resistant threat. And, and you know, you think those channels include going down the wings and trying to play out those areas because there is still cover in the middle of the park. And the way that the ball is given away is going to be incredibly frustrating for everyone in the dressing room. And look, they don't need anyone to tell them that that's disappointing. I'm sure that the entire squad is absolutely devastated with the way that the end of the game played out. But in some ways, you just look at it and go, oh, we've done it again. And obviously, we saw a bit of this against Tottenham when we sort of let things slip out of our own hands when we had a free kick in our own half, just towards the end of the half. And suddenly, you kind of concede from that. And it's just like, take a minute and breathe. It felt like a little bit more of the same here. Yeah, I mean, I'd, it's obviously, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not pointing any fingers at Palina at all. And to be honest, I was stunned when I got home and realised it was actually him that had made that clearance because I hadn't realised that when I was at, at the ground. Uh, but we have to just give credit to Bruno Fernandes. There's very few players that would have been able to carry that out. Like the way that he sold us with the dummy to bring it back onto his right foot was, honestly, it was outstanding. And then to whip it in low like that into that bottom corner um, was just absolutely brilliant and I think that while it's hard to take sometimes you just have to accept that these other teams have players of such high caliber and quality that there's little you can do about it I know that Bruno Fernandes in the Premier League is one not really liked by any any opponent of Manchester United but secondly He's got his fair bit of stick, particularly for his body language and his attitude. But you and I both watch him play regularly international football for Portugal as part of our other job. And whenever that guy plays for Portugal, that's what you get from him. Like moments like that is what you get. And so it happens. It happens when you play against teams like Man United. You switch off for a moment and it's gone. It's just a shame that it came to that, really. It, it really was... Um, 
a big blow to everybody. Obviously, everyone starts just heading straight for the exit and it's deflating because you do take a nil-nil against Man United. Even this Man United, you take a nil-nil as Fulham and it, and it feels like a really good result. True, it, it felt like we kind of got away with it in the first half with the VAR decision that obviously took forever. And look, you can debate that till the cows come home and there have been more controversial calls in, in VAR across the course of the season and perhaps we were owed one after the, the goal up at Manchester City earlier in the season. So I think you, you take what you get there. But to lose in that fashion has got to be incredibly deflating for the squad because, you know, we've now come off the back of this period and it's been a tricky period, I think, for... For everyone involved, obviously the point at Brighton is a good point, well earned. But you look at that and go, that's a point dropped. And now we have to go to Villa Park and it's almost like, okay, this is the end of this chunk of the season between the international breaks. And it piles the pressure back on at an incredibly difficult place to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's like you said earlier, this is a United side that is far from the ones that we grew up with. And it's one that you should stop looking at the stature of a club and look at the quality of a team. And uh, I think we should have obviously uh, got something out of the game. And it's these stop-start little sprints at the first part of the season when you've got international breaks galore, where obviously this one coming we knew was probably one of our toughest sort of four, five, six game runs. Uh, and we've not we've not got out of it what we, what we would have hoped. Um, well, I mean, we didn't hope, we didn't expect much, but we would hope for a little bit more. So, you know, obviously Villa uh, on on Sunday, unbeaten at home in the league. Uh, I mean, I'm not. We talk about expecting. I'm expecting absolutely nothing from that. And then if you, if you know, if your Everton's and your your Luton's get a result, then you're going into the break a little bit gloomy and uh, and the pressure's looking a little bit. A little bit tighter, but you know, if, if you get Luton or Bournemouth get a win, then suddenly there's only three points difference between us and them, and that's when you start to, instead of thinking, ah, oh, there's a nice little cushion, that's when you start to sweat a little bit more. Yeah, definitely, definitely. This is a tricky part of the season, and we're riding the waves, but it's not been fun. I think is probably the the way I would put it. Uh, right after the break, we're going to turn our attention to that Aston Villa game and have a look at if Fulham can get anything out of the trip to Villa Park. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast. Jack Collins here with Dean Jones and Drew Healy. And now about to look forward to Fulham's trip to Villa Park on Sunday. Look forward, Drew, might be the wrong word. Villa have won the last 12 games at Villa Park in the league. It's a remarkable record under Unai Emery. And it's a very, very difficult place to go these days. And I think that we've seen that from, from various teams. But more than that, you know, you look at this Villa side and... I'm seeing a side that are on the verge of becoming a challenger club. I think that what we're seeing from them generally, the way that Villa are kind of underestimated, I think sometimes in the amount of money that they have, I think behind Newcastle and Manchester City, Aston Villa are actually the third richest club in the Premier League. Um, and, and you kind of look at what they're building there under Unai Emery. You look at the players and the, the players coming in, the fact that it's a massive stadium, a massive historical fan base. All the pieces are in place for Villa to return to those glory years that we knew growing up of them knocking around in the top four, making Champions League runs, et cetera, et cetera. We're hitting them at a, a better time than most in that they lost to Forest last weekend. And we'll come on to that game, Drew. But this Villa resurgence through the last couple of years has been really impressive to watch in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, we're sort of, we're hitting them at a time where they're really sort of hitting their stride with Emery. They brought him in, uh, was it last season? And uh, and those 
pieces are sort of falling into place. Um, they're, they're, they're combining sort of these these great sort of uh, marquee signings like uh, Luis and, and Pau Torres, and they're combining it with sort of the the people who got them there uh, in the first place, like McGinn, and they're just they're really they're really in a good place. But we can see that they're not. Uh, you know they're not indestructible. Uh, they they obviously lost their last game, but at Villa Park they pretty much nearly are indestructible. So um, it's one of those where with Villa have got everything in place and they're feeling really comfortable at the moment. Where we're exactly the opposite. We're the unfinished painting, and uh, you know that classic horse, isn't it? You know the great steed at the back and a child's drawing at the front. So uh, uh, I, and at the moment you could argue that we're not really the steed at the back. So. I'm not expecting anything. Um, I'm sort of slightly terrified, to be honest. I hope it's not a, a cricket score. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's going to be a tough one, I think. Uh, the only other saving grace you've got is that, you know, we're playing them on a Sunday after the uh, Conference League, um, which we saw against Brighton can sometimes give us a little bit of an in to uh, if we're on a, if we're having a good day, we, we could uh, sort of battle and take, take something from it. But, um that's probably the only sort of glimmer of optimism that I have, and I apologise for that. Yeah, I mean, do you know, though, I, th- I, th- I think that one thing that can work in our favour here is that there is an expectation that they beat us, and I think that sometimes that can go against teams when you start to feel like this. Like, we do become that team. Like, last season, we were a different proposition to teams. Like, oh, it's Fulham, that'll be tricky. Now it's like, oh, it's just Fulham coming. And that has helped us before, and it can help us again. Obviously, we'll have to see how they get on in the Conference League. Maybe they pick up a knock or two that ends up helping us. But to be honest, even then, you know, T. Elements is stepping in in good moments at the moment. Leon Bailey's stepping up with, with big moments. They've got a lot of competition for places, and that, that squad is deep and strong. And it's it's going to be one of our toughest games of the season, no doubt about it. I mean, you look at uh, the home form table at the moment, Aston Villa are top of it. It's scored 20 goals at Villa Park so far this season. Like, this is a really tough game for us, and it's a really tough test for our back line as well. Um, you know, we've we've seen so far how we've been um, holding up uh, with, with Calvin Bassey in a, in a role which I feel sorry for him in, um, and this is going to be a, a tough one for him. But I don't say that we go there without hope, for sure, because, you know, we've had good historical wins against Aston Villa. Villa Park, one of my first actual games going away to watch Fulham was the famous uh, FA Cup game when we we went up there and we, we won 2-0, good old Simon Morgan. Um, so, you know, those memories for some of us are still alive, like an, an unexpected win uh, can live on. Obviously, we got we had the big day in the playoffs, um, so we can use that to our advantage somehow, then that would be good. Uh, but ultimately... You know, every winning run does come to an end at some point. And we do have a resilience about us in this team. And especially when Palinia is in this team and people bounce off of his um, action man performances, we can go to places like this and still get results. So do I expect us to go to Villa Park and actually win? Of course, I don't know. But I think the fact that Aston Villa expects to beat us can possibly work in our favour. I went on a villain forum just to see what they were making of it in the build-up to this game. And um, I saw one comment on there. I'll read it out. Um, and they said, look, um, can we equal our the record of 12 home wins in a row? Well, hopefully, we've just got to realise that Emery Ball works fine and recognise that one game doesn't undermine it at all. They say that that Forest game uh, doesn't end 2-0 if it's repeated nine times over. We got unlucky on that day. This, we are a different beast at home. 
We earn the luck that we get. I cannot see us failing to beat Fulham, uh, provided we make it through with no injuries. They expect to beat us, and Fulham have to go there thinking, we're not rubbish. I know we look a bit rubbish at the time of the season, but we're not rubbish just because we lost Mitrovic. The saving grace, we're not rubbish. We're is, not is rubbish. About, so can someone take a banner? Like United had that, that banner at the game on Saturday. Let's take one. We're not rubbish. Do it. Interesting. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be, it would be something. I mean, uh, one thing I can take from it, Drew, is that, you know, you look at this and one, Aston Villa, I think that they owe us something, right? Not only did we, we beat them in the playoff final, which meant that they got rid of the ownership that was really toxic <laughs> at the top of the tree and helped them sort the entire club out. And then they came up and were, were a much more complete unit. But also we helped them get rid of Steven Gerrard at the back end of last year. And that ended up with Unai Emery in. So, if anything, they owe us a favour. And I've seen this kind of sentiment on Twitter, on Villa Twitter before, being like, yeah, we, we owe Fulham Football Club so much. <laughs> they've, they've sorted us out twice in really <laughs> crucial moments um, of, of the club's history and in recent history at the very least. But the other thing is that I was looking at the way that Forrest set up these days. And I don't think it's a million miles from the way that Fulham play. Uh, I think, you know, you look at these players, they have a very good shot stopper in goal in Vlacodimos. They have two fullbacks who like to get forward in adventure in Aina and, and Toffolo. In the middle, they have Irim Sangare uh, and Onel Mangala and Nicolas Dominguez. Dominguez plays a little bit further forward than the other two. Sangare is a bit of a destructive presence and Mangala is a bit of sort of an all-action player. And then they play sort of a wide forward in Gibbs White, who kind of feels more like a 10. Anthony Alanga, who is a winger, and now Anii through the middle, who, to be fair to him, is much better than all of our strikers. But you kind of look at that and think, the way that Forrest have, have played that game and looked at it and set up to try and combat Villa isn't a million miles off what Fulham will do here. We will look to get the fullbacks forward. Obviously, it was Olaina who scored the first goal for Forrest in this one. The second one is is a mistake by Amy Martinez, fine, but it's not like the Forest forward line had a field day. It was well put together, you know, ranged forays from the from the two fullbacks, which were able to, to get forward and make things happen. And then a solid defensive display from the midfield three who tucked in and made things difficult for Villa. That's probably the probably the methodology. Yeah, and if we do that, we want to try and uh, ape what Forrest did by getting a an early goal from uh, it was I know Olaenia, wasn't it? Uh, within five minutes. So if we can do that and give ourselves something to defend, and then you know reenact the Alamo, then maybe maybe that could be the way to go. Um, you know, I think as well if we don't, if we if we if it's sort of you know goalless or it, that would be probably all right. But to be honest, I think it. it, it that we they're going to score um, through probably Watkins, aren't they? So it's a case of uh, if we're going to do it, get a, get get them with an early blow. Get get one of those. What was it? Bournemouth who uh, got us from kickoff a couple of seasons ago. You know, just have something where we just sort of try and stun them in those first five. Give us something to hold on to, and then maybe we might get a bit of luck. But uh, that that would probably not a bad idea. Marco, you're listening. <laughs> he probably is. Probably is. I mean, yeah. it's, it's tricky. Dean, you mentioned the the Thursday night game, the RZ Alkmaar game. And in, on paper, RZ Alkmaar were the toughest team in Aston Villa's Conference League group, right? They, they're currently second in the Eredivisie. They had a really good year last year, got to Conference League semi-finals when they were knocked out by West Ham United. Um, but Villa went to Alkmaar and absolutely hammered them a fortnight ago. Now, you'd imagine that lessons will be learned from that game. And Alkmaar are desperate for points here if they're going to qualify 
out of this group. They were very much the second seeds and, and the team that were expected to get out of this group alongside Villa. So there is something in that maybe that that team will have a point to prove. There's a player in there, Evangelist Pavlidis, who I've been banging on about for ages. So if you need some Thursday night viewing, that might be one to keep an eye on for, for a multitude of reasons. But I'd imagine that RZ will, will come out here and, and give themselves a better account of themselves than they did in the home leg. And maybe that will allow for a tougher game and something that's a little bit harder on Villa's legs than perhaps the one was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, I'll be interested, to be honest, to see what um, midfield we decide to line up with here. Um, obviously, Harrison Reed didn't play at all against Man United. Tom Kearney didn't come on until later. Same with Lukic. Started a Wobi or around um, Palinia. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what approach we take here if we're just going to try and be resilient and you know, realistically we're going to win this game. If we're going to win this game, it's going to be like one goal. So how how are we going to manage to to win that battle in the middle? I'll be honest, I'd quite like to see Kearney. Um, there's part of me that just feels we're not seeing enough of, of Tom Kearney so far this season generally. Um, he's had two Premier League starts so far. Um, and interesting, they, they did both come away from home, one against Everton, one against Man City. Um, so be interesting to see what we go with there. I don't know what you think would be best, Jack, but I just feel like Iwobi, I'd kind of like... Andreas has like not been terrible by any stretch of the imagination, but like I wouldn't mind seeing a Wobi play where Andreas is and then putting someone else in there alongside Palina, whether that's Reed or Luka Jorkani, I don't know. But we've got a lot of options in that area of the pitch, and I think it's going to be so crucial that we get it right. Yeah, I mean, that, that midfield battle is, as you say, it is crucial. And, and look, Drew, you mentioned the, the players that they're coming up against here in in John Begin, but also Douglas Louise, who's in an absolutely Louise phenomenal way of form. Yeah. Uh, and mm -hmm. Bubakar Kamara, who I, I, I still maintain is probably one of the most underrated midfielders in the Premier League. He came in, he's done an absolutely remarkable job, I think, for Villa when he's been fit. Obviously, he's had, he's had his injuries, but when he's been ready and, and, and available, I think he's one of those players that makes everyone around him better. And you have to combat that. Right, and and I think that what you get with John McGinn is is an incredible amount of energy as well as well as ability on the ball and the fact that he's able to drive with it. Douglas Luiz has, has suddenly started scoring, you know, multitudes of goals for some reason, which is which is bizarre. But it it shows a kind of further attacking element to his game that I think Kamara allows him to bring out because he's so good at the base. So I would be intrigued as to how he plays this, but I think that it won't be as attacking a lineup as the Manchester United one looked. I can see either Sasha Lukic or Harrison Reed coming back in here to try and combat that Villa midfield and the energy that they bring. Yeah, and I wonder we've got such a we've got depth in the middle of the park, and we we have many different combinations of that sort of middle three. But sometimes I wonder whether we're doing it for different we're doing it on the based on the opponents that we're playing, or whether Marco Silva is still trying to figure out what combination works best in order to sort of activate the the final attacking third sometimes. You know, obviously, Polina puts his own name on the team sheet and that's fine. And, you know, we get uh, Lukic and Reed, which sort of seem to be uh, interchangeable depending on the opposition. But then you're whacking in Awobi a in uh, in that role in against United, at least at the beginning. And uh, and uh, sometimes in the 10, I don't know. Sometimes it feels like we're, we're hurtling our way through the season, but we're still trying to figure out what's best to try and uh, ignite that final third rather than playing uh, than who we're playing on the on any particular weekend but um I do agree like I think um we seem to be playing 
uh, Lukic a bit more against sort of the harder teams uh, on paper. So maybe we'll maybe we'll do that on the weekend. But um, it's I guess it's is, is it Awobi or is it Pereira in the ten? Uh, you'd have to say that he's got to be Alex, surely, uh, based on uh, in the performances we've seen in recent weeks. Yeah, I think it would be a bad decision to leave Iwobi out of this one, like given the form that he's starting to build up now. like We've we've got to just start finding some players who've actually got form. And Andreas hasn't got form this season. Um, it, and, that, and that's been a, a big disappointment, obviously, on the back of losing Mitro to there have Andreas drop-off as well, I think has been another big reason why our goals have dropped off um, so heavily. I mean, it's it's quite depressing, really, looking at our top goal scoring list at the moment. Just seeing Bobby and Palina sat there on was it two goals each or something like it's it's a sad state of affairs. But it's where we are right now, and we've got to kind of get through this period of the season and keep our heads above water, make sure that that gap still exists between us and the bottom three or four, and um, and just make sure we are not dragged into that because. There's not many teams, I think, that can genuinely be pulled into that because I think the bottom four are pretty bad enough that they will be staying there. But one other club, I think, will get dragged down there. And please don't be us. Just don't be us. So much of it is that, isn't it? It's it's like this season is like stay away from the vortex. And it's just the There's last no thing you want. need to get involved in that, lads. We can the last thing you want is that. giving clubs hope, right? You let them scrap with each other. But the idea of dragging someone else in is like, oh, two of us could get out of this. No, 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 no. One of you can get yeah. out of this. And I'm not sure who it is, but one of you could. Um, but you kind of look at that and think, you know, that as you said earlier, Drew, you know, if Bournemouth win a game and Fulham lose one and suddenly that gap is down to three points it all starts to look a little bit more uncomfortable. And, and that's the last thing you want. And whilst I'm not going to sit here and be like, okay, I think that we should be getting three points out of a trip to Villa Park with the form that they're in. I think that you pick up these points and you pick up the points like we did at the Amex against Brighton. You pick up these key points and they just keep you ticking along when things aren't perfect. And look, if Fulham can then look to address the issues, especially around our goal scoring ability in January, then maybe things change. But until that happens... It's very much a case of just keep your heads above water, make sure that everything's ticking and, and roll with it from there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in many ways. And I think that's probably where we should leave our Aston Villa preview. We've got a load of questions and some talk about transfers after the break. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast, part three here of the Thursday Club. I'm Jack Collins and I'm joined by Drew Heatley and Dean Jones. And we've got some questions to answer before we go into them, because this is a nice crossover section. I just wanted to get some thoughts on transfers for January from Dean. Obviously, Dean is a transfer expert, so dials into all of these things for various different people. And I think that the big question, Dean, on, on everyone's lips is what are Fulham doing about trying to fill this goal-scoring void? We'll come on to some other stories that have been breaking over the last couple of weeks as well. But I think that that's the one that sort of headlines any discussion about Fulham right now. Absolutely. And oh, like everyone else, I'm praying we are actually going to sign one. Like that, Let's say that first and foremost. Like I'm told that, that we will sign a striker and that's good. But are we going to sign a striker that's good enough? That's the fear I've got. Are we going to actually look to fill this Mitro gap now? Or are we going to look to put that off until the summer? Here's the problem. I've spoken to a few people, like not just at Fulham, but other clubs that are around like Fulham level. And like we talked about that relegation battle before, 
until really this weekend when it got a little spicier, it looks like we won't be involved in that. So even if we didn't sign a striker to replace Mitro, would we survive this season? And from a business perspective, if you can avoid spending big money in the transfer window in January, then you do do that. You avoid the January transfer window as much as you can in terms of like main components of your squad makeup. But if you're in crisis, this is the time when you actually dive straight into it. Now, I would argue that we are in a crisis because we cannot score a goal and that that can quickly spiral. And it only takes one team to quickly find some form in the second half of the season by making a managerial change. And suddenly they get out of it and you're plummeting. But I fear that Fulham will sign someone but someone that's not super expensive or super good and doesn't quite have the caliber to keep us up. But let's look at the positives first, because like there are some names that to look out for. Um, Gift Urban is somebody that Fulham did look at in the summer transfer window, and his name is still mentioned to me. Now, Gift Urban hasn't been in the same form so far this season that he was in last season. He plays uh, in Belgium for Ghent. Um, he has three league goals to his name so far this season, um, which isn't uh, too He'd much. He'd be our top scorer, wouldn't he? He'd still be our top. I love, I love the positive stance <laughs> on that. Yeah, he's absolutely. We'd be worshipping him if he was playing at Craven Cottage right now. So that's a positive. We are linked with Jurassic. There's even been a story saying we're in we're in contact um, with them o- over that deal. For those who don't know, Jurassic is like one of the most informed strikers uh, in Germany right now. Plays at Stuttgart, uh, has had an injury recently, but um, I'll be honest, I can't see us getting him in January. Um, it's a it's a big get. Uh, he's got a multitude of big clubs, and by big clubs, I do mean bigger than Fulham looking in his direction now for the end of the season. And I know that there's a bit of talk about them renegotiating his contract because he's got a, a clause in there right now that sees him get out for something like £15 million. And that seems the steal of the century. So I can't particularly see that. And the other one, uh, who Jack, you probably know uh, more about than me in terms of being a, as a footballer, is, is Santi Jimenez, um, who is... Continuing to be linked with Fulham, uh, a fine odd striker who has been in, in very good form. But I spoke to someone about this, again, just to, to see what kind of chance Fulham would have of signing Santi Jimenez. And the message coming out of it really is that they're going to play hardball um, over over any deal to take him halfway through the season. And more than that, like this is a player that's going to cost towards £50 million. I don't know if either of you can see Fulham spending £50 million in the January transfer window um, and absolutely blow apart our transfer record, which we set with um, Jean-Michel Serri um, five years ago now when we spent £25 million on him. To basically double that, to sign a striker from Feyenoord is what would be needed. And with Feyenoord not even in any mood to lose him in January, I find it a little bit hard to believe. So I think we're going to have to get clever here. And these big names that we're being linked with, while they they sound fun and they give us some optimism, I think that the recruitment team are currently working on some smarter signings that actually fit well with what we're going to need in the second half of the season. I mean, Jimenez is brilliant. 
and he has had a sensational start this season. He's got 15 in 14 in all competitions. He He's basically been on fire. And, and we've seen him score in, in the big games. We've seen him score in the Champions League. We've seen him score in a hat-trick against Ajax. I mean, admittedly, Ajax have been poor this season, but a hat-trick in, in the Classica against Ajax. We've seen him step up to be counted as Feyenoord have started the season really, really well. So when you're kind of putting all of that into context... I would like to see that signing. I think it would make a lot of sense. But as you say, I, I can't see him going for less than 50 million. And if Fulham are in the market and Fulham have put that on the table and the bid is accepted, I don't see a world where the likes of Juventus aren't looking at going 50 million. We'll have that. Thank you very much. So I find it difficult to believe that Santi Jimenez will end up at Fulham. But I would like to see it. So, oh, I, but I mean, look, what, a signing like that would just give the whole place such a lift, though. Like, even to just have us spend twenty million pound on a striker, I think, even if we'd never heard of him, would be a, a step forward right now, just to give us some hope and belief that this is going to change, and that's what we all need. Like, it's so frustrating to me every single match day to hear Mitrovic still being spoken about every time a chance goes begging. Like, if you think like. Tottenham lost Harry Kane and his, his name's barely been mentioned since the first day of the season over there because they've just, fa- I don't, fair enough, they had Son to kind of like bridge the gap and we don't have a Son, but they've still managed to overcome that huge loss without signing anybody. And, okay, we signed Raul Jimenez, but none of us had huge expectations around that and it was more a punt than anything else. And it's just extremely unfortunate that we haven't got anybody with any goal caliber. So just give us some hope. Like, honestly, that that is what we're all crying out for once we get to January, because it's going to be really difficult. Also, the other thing to bear in mind, of course, is that the African Cup of Nations does start mid-Jan. So that will also complicate um, the January transfer market and... You know, typically there'll, there'll be quite a few names that you would be looking at potentially to... Well, Gift Orban, uh, as you just mentioned. As Gift Orban, exactly. Like a prime example of somebody who would be looking to be involved in that tournament and, and won't be able to play for you anyway if he does sign in Germany. Okay. Well, the way I, I'm convinced that January we're going to do a, a classic from the Coleman years. We're going to get somebody uh, on loan in the in the window, a striker on loan who's trying to get themselves in the shop window ahead of the Euros. That's the that's what I think is going to happen. I think it's like you said, Dean. Like clubs don't want to get involved in that short the uh, transfer window of zero value in it and if we know one thing about the higher ups at uh, Fulham is that they're business first so they I don't think they want any part of the window so I think it's going to be loan signing domestic or European one eye on the euros somebody who's going to come in hopefully do uh, a pog which I know wasn't the common years but I was thinking more Vincenzo Montella it will still mm. bring everybody if we get a name in on loan who's going to come in and hopefully like just fire us away from danger. That's going to do just as much to keep the collective pecker up as a big 50 million signing and then look in the summer. Because I think, you know, with Mitro, it was a lightning in a bottle. You're not going to capture that again. So you've got to be clever. Uh, and I think to be clever, you don't do it in the last stages of the chance window in the summer. We didn't have enough time, although you could argue that we should have a plan in place and done that. But I think they're going to have to be a bit smarter and have a little bit more time. So I just think January is like nuclear. I just can't see it happening, but I would expect slash hope slash love 
uh, a big name loan come in, you know, do do yeah. the biz. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Syriac's a free agent. <laughs> uh, there's there's always that we can always we can always press the Syriac button. It's the <laughs> one that one that could really turn this season around. Still maintain you quite even good if we just give him a chance, but here we oh, are. Man. Um, you know, we, we we live with it. I mean, there was a question on this from Craven the Hunter who said it's a bit early this, but where could you see us looking if we were to acquire two domestic loans in January? It's a really good question. Yeah. Um I mean a domestic loan in terms of a striker is gonna be difficult, isn't it? Because I can't yeah. think of anyone that you're gonna you're gonna find that's gonna change our season because the only reason they're gonna be loaned out right now is if they're not getting into any other Premier League team and not really looking to take any any cast offs that I can think of that that aren't pulling up trees already. So that'd be extremely difficult to do. I mean typically Typical Fulham fashion, we'll probably go and sign another fullback on loan. Um, so I won't rule that out for now. Um, but obviously, the other the other uh, area we continue to look at is the centre of midfield. And I know we'll, we'll talk about this a bit further in a second. But you think, well, that's the area we're actually stacked in. But beyond the striker, that is the position that continues to be thrown up. I mean, I would argue personally, if you were to go open this up a bit more and say, okay, well, if you were to find a loan signing, where would you like to find it? I mentioned at the start that I'm not particularly impressed by Harry Wilson's um, output at the moment. Willian's obviously not been at the same level of output as he was last season. I might have to be looking back into that that situation. I know, like Dharma Traore, obviously has barely been seen recently. Maybe we're missing somebody out there as well because we, you know we so much de- depended on those positions and we had such a variety of players that were able to come in there, both in the last season of the Championship and last season. And that feels like it's fizzled out a bit as well. I wonder if, you know, you, you look to the championship and you look to, I know that sounds ridiculous, but you look to someone like Che Adams. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the answer, just so we're clear. I, I think that would probably be not the answer, considering he underperformed his expected goals every season he was in the Premier League with Southampton. But that's the way I could see the club looking and just going, okay, he's not really yeah. playing all that much. His game time's gone down. He's clearly looking for a way out. Yeah, and I think they've got Ross Stewart like coming in now to fitness and, and like I think there is a chance that Che Adams leaves. So I think that's a good shout. I mean, Wilfred Nonto is being talked about as being unhappy again at, at Leeds. Um, I'm all over that. If Fulham want to go ahead with signing Wilfred Nonto, absolutely, um, I, I'm here for it. But yeah, you're, you're right, Jack. Like a player like, like Che Adams in terms of profile, this sounds quite depressing, but yeah, it probably does fit what we're looking for. If, if you look into the championship, there's a young striker at Birmingham uh, who's doing quite well. We could probably do uh, probably hey. do with poaching him, maybe. What's his name? Stan- Stansfield? Stansfield. Yeah, he'd be good. I was going to yeah, say this earlier on when we were talking about the three that we've got. Would we have been better off with Stansfield in all three of them? Over it's this course of games, it's would possible, he be our top it, goal scorer? It is, it's such a risk, right? And, and I think you, you understand that. And look, we were talking about this recently just within the, you know, the Villamish group. And we were saying, is it time to recall Jay Stansfield? And you know exactly what happens if he gets recalled. He comes back, he plays like 18 minutes across the course of three months. And we're like, what a waste of time. Why didn't he stay at Birmingham and score hmm. 10 more goals in the championship and come back a fully fledged goal scorer ready to make his mark? I'm wary of it too much having, you know, I I obviously understand the sentiment and the calls for Stansfield's return, considering Fulham's lack of goal scoring ability. But I just can't see him being trusted enough 
to justify recalling him in the middle of a season when he could yeah. go on and have that full season. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. It comes down to Marco, doesn't it? He will find out from the board already, right, January, what's available, what's the moves, what we're going to do. And if and if, and if they find out that actually, no, you're not going to get uh, you're not going to get that big marquee signing striker in January. And uh, he looks at the development. He'll be getting the dossiers, etc. If Marco says, right, I'm going to bring Jay in and I'm literally I'm going to give him the ball and say you are our guy for the second half of the season if he says that and he and he believes that based on what he's seen and what he's told from the board then then that's what we that's great let's do it but if he uh is told to bring him back and he doesn't think he's ready or he's it's not marco's call then yeah leave him there give him the season um but it, i think it comes down to the gaffer doesn't it yeah fundamentally i think it it, it very much does um right a couple more questions let's move onwards this is from reese benjamin i thought it was an interesting one um, he says, now that we've allowed it to breathe a little, do you believe the club got enough money for Mitrovic, given we had no net transfer spent and Caicedo and Rice went for £100 million this window? Drew? I think we would have struggled to get any more from him. I don't think... It was always... We've always said the worth of a player is what... Uh, the value of a player is what he's worth to the selling club. But ultimately, if you look at uh, his... Uh, his age and his and some of the gaps in his game, such as like penalties and things like that, we were lucky in the sense that we got that from a from a Saudi club. I don't know whether we would, well we wouldn't have got that. I don't think certainly from anyone else. So it's difficult to say like oh we should have held out for X Y and Z. And I don't think Al Halal would have gone that high anyway. We saw that they were playing relative hardball, I guess for 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 a Saudi club uh, that summer. So I. Even with the dust settled, I think we got what we could have expected, the best we could have expected to get, to be honest. Um, obviously, the problem is the reinvestment, but I don't think we could have got much more, personally. Mm. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're probably right. I mean, it, it doesn't sound enough because, you know, you see bigger transfers happening and you see how it's affected Fulham's team and you see that he's gone over to... Saudi Pro League and he's he's got 10 goals and 9 assists this season like there's just no let up in what he's doing he continues to tear it up and I hate to hear about it to be honest I was hoping he'd fall off a cliff um, it hasn't happened um, would you take Mitro back say the Saudi thing went no. bad right no. say in two years two seasons time Mitro's coming back available again. To, what, I'm looking 30, for 31? At 31, Mitro's ready to come up to the Premier League. Would you take him back? No, never go back. Never works. Remember when Clint Dempsey came back? Clint Dempsey is one of my favourite Fulham players ever. What he about if we back. still haven't signed a striker? If we still haven't signed a striker, we won't <laughs> be in the Premier League. Mitro replaces Mitro. We won't be able to be, we won't be in the Premier League anyway, so we won't be able to afford him. So. <laughs> I think that's one that we can probably write off. No, I don't think you go back. I don't think even if it's offered to us right now, I'd take him back. I think you have to just accept that that period is now over and you have to move forward. And so, yeah, I think it's one of those. La last one on transfers before we move on um, is from Ben Prime, who says, I know Jack will be beyond excited about the latest Andre rumours, but has Dean heard anything concrete about our interest in him? Yeah, I mean, we, are, we definitely have had interest in him. I think even dating back to uh, the last window, like Fulham were involved in those discussions. I think that the thing that I struggle to believe is that we would win the race for his signature. I think that that's the toughest thing. I, it does seem pretty legitimate, whether you speak to people in Brazil or here, that, that Fulham uh, uh, have an interest around this transfer. Uh, but 
in terms of beating like Liverpool and Arsenal to the signing of somebody like this, I just find it hard to believe. And also from the player's point of view, if he knows that Liverpool are interested in him, is he going to sign for Fulham? I can't see it. But obviously January is like, we talk about not many big moves will necessarily happen this January. But Andre is a move that probably will happen in January because of the way the, the season works, the schedule and the market. So his transfer probably is heating up to something that is going to happen here. Um, and my personal feeling is that Fulham won't win this. But And I haven't seen him play enough to know exactly where he'd fit for us. I know Jack is, is excited about it. But, I mean, sounds like it would be an amazing signing. And obviously there is that part of your, back of your mind. It's like, okay, well, we will be in a Mitro situation with Palina at some point soon. Like, Palinia is continuing to play at such an elite level that it's it's too good to be true that this guy is is penning this latest contract with a thought of yeah I want to spend the rest of my days here it's um it's obviously likely that if he doesn't go in Jan which I'm told he won't he'll be going at the end of the season which then you think okay well great if Andre's coming into to that midfield area then then give him some time in there with Palinia, understand that, and then we can move on from it. So the answer to the question is, yes, there's something in it. No, I'm not convinced it will happen, but yes, I hope it does. I spoke to a Brazilian journalist off the back of this because I was intrigued about it, and I was like, why, why are Fulham suddenly being called as leading this race? Because that doesn't add up to me. And he said Liverpool have backed out because the, the transfer fee has been raised to sort of between 30 and 35 million dollar mark so that's a something to to think about as well because Fulham again would be breaking our transfer record here if we were going to sign him and that is a big gamble on a player who has one international appearance and has never played in Europe now that's not saying he wouldn't be a success I really like him I really like the way he plays I think he'd be an excellent addition to his Fulham side and I think his game style is very suited to the way that Premier League football works. So I think that there wouldn't be too much of an issue there. Plus, you have this Portuguese-Brazilian core at Fulham, which would help him to settle. So I think all of the pieces are in place that if we did go and do this, it would be a sensible manoeuvre. But are Fulham going to go and break our transfer record to do this? Questionable, I think. Um, and so the reason that Liverpool have backed out, or that Fulham are leading the race, or there's been no contact between the clubs, I believe, is that you know, Liverpool have walked away because they were like, we don't want to pay that. So whether Fulham are willing to actually meet that price tag and that valuation or not, he's just become Copa Libertadores champion with Fluminense. They have no obligation to sell. They are the best team in South America right now. They have that standing to to sit on and go, okay, you want to go, you got to pay for him. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm sort of falling down a little bit on it. Mm, surprised Liverpool would walk away at that kind of figure, like it doesn't seem that much to me for a, a club like Liverpool to pay, but that does give me hope that at least Liverpool are nowhere near being able to afford Palinia, who would fit into their team absolutely <laughs> brilliantly. Well, I think it's more if they're going to spend that on someone, they'd like to spend it on someone European proven. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that's where, that's where they're sat. Okay. All right. A couple more before we go. Uh, Tim Elkington says, what does Lukic bring to the team when he comes on? I thought, oh, Dean, Dean is shaking his head. <laughs> I'm trying to work this out every time he plays, mate. Um, Drew, I'm going to start with you here because I, I am. I, I will defend Sasha Lukic here, although I will suggest that he's one of those players that is far better from the start of a game than coming on as uh, and kind of making an impact as a sub. Hmm. It comes back to what I was thinking earlier. Like you know, 
he's he's currently brought in for Harrison Reed every time. And, you know, when he came in, he was very much touted as the more technically proficient Reed, uh, you know, with the European uh, pedigree, etc., cetera, uh, coming in from Torino. And, and that's kind of how Marco's used him. Like he, he wins those second balls. He's quite, but he, he doesn't, the phrase isn't flat as to deceive. It's just, he just sort of deceives sometimes. I'm just like, I'm the same as Dean. Like, I'm like, I don't understand necessarily what it is that he does. Mm. Um, I don't see him as necessarily as a as a sort of an upgrade of Reed or a, a better version of Reed. I don't think they. I, I can see what Reed does and I can see what Reed brings to the team. Um, so it, it is a bit of a head scratch, and I don't know whether that's because my my knowledge, my tactical knowledge of football, isn't as as up there as it should be to to truly understand the the enigma that is Sasha Lukic. But yeah, sometimes he stumps me. Yeah, what do you like about him, Jack? Why were you excited before he came? Because I remember you were, and you were like, oh, this is a really good sign. And I presumed that Lukic was the successor to Palinia, but from seeing him so far, I don't understand how that could be the case. Maybe it never was going to be. No, I, I, I think I said that at the time. I never saw him as a number six. He was he was on eight and played at 10 at times at, at Torino, but I, I don't think that's where he's, he's best. I just think that there is something in, in, with football fans, and there is an innate bias, one, I think, to players that we've seen you know, develop with the team and, and grow into ourselves. And so I love Harrison Reed as much as anyone. But the fact that he is small in stature and therefore kind of harries about like a little dynamo, I think makes it, you know, people are like, oh, he, he's he's working incredibly hard. I think Lukic covers the same ground. He's just quite long and elegant. And the way that he strides across the pitch makes it look a little bit like he's not trying. But I'd imagine that actually, if you look at the numbers and the, and the ground covered, they're probably not all that different. I really like him as a ball carrier. I think that we lack, the ability to get the ball in the middle of the pitch and actually drive with it. And so when Fulham are in the ascendancy and when we are in transition, I think Lukic brings a lot of that to the table. The problem is that when he comes into games, I think he takes about 10 minutes to get going. And so when he comes on as a sub, it doesn't work for me. I, I, I don't like him in that impact role. He's one of those players that I'm like, he has to either start or not come on. And that's not, you know, that's not to say that he can't, he has to always start. There are games that don't suit that. There are games where I'm not completely sure that Fulham are going to have that ability to, to play in transition and therefore he doesn't actually fit with the nature of things. But I thought against Tottenham he was excellent. I really did. I thought that he, he had a really good game that night and that he was just a, a real thorn in their side for the whole thing. And, you, you know, the kind of missed moment was when he decided to have an absolute whack from 25 yards out and it ne- ended up nearly out of the stadium. But <laughs> generally, I, I like what he brings to the team. I don't think we've seen him at his full capacity yet. And I don't think we've seen him be released into that a role which he had with Torino, where he was able to sort of crash the box late, make things happen and score goals. But Silva clearly wants him in a quite in a slightly more restrained role in midfield. And I wonder if that's just the reason we're not seeing the full kind of package just yet. Um, but what he's doing, I think he's doing well. Hmm. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I think that, um, yeah, that's it. I think so much of the time I'm seeing him come into games rather than starting starting and, and allowing him to kind of push himself into the game from the first moment. And in that area of the field, it, it takes a particular, I think, level of experience and now to be able to do that. And I think that's the one thing that goes against Kearney starting games, I think, the fact that he can come into a match and just get into the flow of it so quickly, like that's it's such an admirable trait to have in a midfielder. And I think it is it's hard hard to have, especially when you haven't had any real experience in the Premier League like Lukic hasn't. Yeah, I mean, weird that you've just said that because our last question is is on that exact matter. It's from Rokus, who says, 
Do you think Kearney deserves a starting spot? Personally, I think it's a Polinia Kearney Awobi partnership that gives us the most going forward. Yeah, I mean, well, that's why I just said I would start at Villa Park. I mean, uh, that that that's personally where I would go. I mean, I I sometimes just, just I think we feel would get like... run to the hills. Well, I know, and I I, appreci- I I do appreciate what you're saying there. Kearney just brings us something that nobody else can in terms of the flow of the midfield and the flow of the play. And I get what you're saying because, like, how much of the the ball are we expecting to have here? Aston Villa lost. 2-0 to Nottingham Forest at the weekend and had something like 72% possession. So what are we expecting to get here? And yeah, if we're not going to have the ball, maybe maybe it's not worth maybe having Kenny. Maybe we don't want said, the ball. Maybe, but then, like I say, Kenny did start at Man City. Um, he did start Everton first game. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what and where Kenny is going to be starting in future. Um, but... Oh, I still love him, man. I still love Tom Kearney so much and I miss him when he's not out there. I think there is a space for this midfield. I just don't think it's away at Villa Park. I think it's at home against Luton. You know, the, the yeah. thing is, we'll just... In, by putting in a... Say Harrison Reed plays, I just, it's just like we're just constantly battling, battling, battling. And just like Tom just gives you that creative outlet to make something happen. And like, as soon as you're got going deeper, you've got Palina with with Reed next to him. I'm just struggling to see how we're going to create anything. Where's a, where's a spark going to come from? Maybe that is why where you go through the first half with Reed and then Kenny comes on in the second after. Or I mean, that's what you you want Awobi in there for, right? So that that would be my three. I yeah. think I would go with well, but also his work rate's excellent. So mm. I think you actually go for me. It's Polinia, Awobi, and then one of Lukic or Reed. Probably Harrison Reed in this game, I think. Mm. But that's I think what gives you the best chance of competing physically with that midfield without losing all of your edge in terms of going forward. Yeah. Fair enough. Who knew three ingredients would be so difficult to find the balance, but I find that's always been the case since uh, for the last few years with Fulham transcending different managers. We've always had that central three and the combinations of, of, of them, especially in the Premier League, not so much an issue in the championship has always been really quite difficult to try and get right. And uh, it, so it proves to continue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I think that will do for today's Fulhamish. So all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much to Mr. Drew Heatley. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much to Mr. Dean Jones. Cheers, mate. I've been Jack Collins. This has been the Thursday Club on Fulhamish. Thank you so much for listening as ever. Have an amazing time if you're travelling up to Villa Park this weekend and hopefully the boys can pull the rabbit out of the hat for you. Take it easy, gang. Peace.